Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 9. The context here, Jesus has just finished healing Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, rising her from, raising her from the dead actually, and he healed a woman who had a 12-year issue of blood. So he's still engaged in this next phase of his Capernaum ministry after coming back from Gadara. Chapter 9, verse 27 says this, As Jesus went on from there, that means from Jairus' house, where he healed the little girl, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, shouting, Have mercy on us, son of David. Why did the two blind men call Jesus son of David? Well, this was a popular Jewish title for the coming Messiah. So obviously the people had started getting the idea that this man Jesus might be the Messiah. Here's in John 7:42 an indication of how the people knew about the Messiah. An unknown person is speaking and says this. Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived? So they had an idea about the Messiah. Of course, they thought he was should be from Bethlehem. They didn't realize that Jesus was actually was born in Bethlehem, although he had moved to Nazareth in his young age as a child. We have another instances of two blind men sitting by the road. This is a different instance, not two blind men following. I call in Matthew 9, it's the two blind men following. In Matthew 20, it's the two blind men sitting. There were two blind men sitting by the road when they heard that Jesus was passing by. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It's interesting that both of the instances of blind men who were healed called, called Jesus the son of David, gave him that messianic title. And, of course, Jesus gave him, himself his own messianic title of son of man. Now, notice that they followed Jesus. Why did they follow him? Well, they heard of the miracle that had just been performed on Jairus' daughter. That was everywhere noised abroad. And they figured, well, you know, if Jesus can raise somebody from the dead, he can heal somebody that's got blind eyes. And they followed him probably because other people were helping him, helping them follow Jesus. They were blind. Now, Isaiah had prophesied that of the Messiah, that Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. Perhaps the blind man had heard of this prophecy and we're thinking of Jesus was the Messiah. He could heal the blindness. We don't know. It's just a speculation. The verse where Isaiah predicted the times of the Messiah is comes from chapter 35 in Isaiah and verse 5 says this, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. It's a great Isaiah messianic prophecy if you read that old chapter. So this miracle of the healing of the two, of the following two blind men is the only place that's recorded in the Gospels. Matthew alone does this. He also records the uh, healing of a dumb demoniac in the next story coming up, and Matthew is the only one that does that. Verse 28 in chapter 9, when he entered the house, when Jesus entered the house at Capernaum, Peter's house where his mother and mother-in-law lived, Simon and Andrew's house, when he, his base of operations, when he entered that house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, they answered him. Now, first question, why did Jesus ignore the blind men? After all, they were shouting after him all the way back from Jairus' house to back to Peter's house. Why were they yelling at him? Why did Jesus ignore the yelling? Well, John Gill gives some options. Option one, to avoid the populace to avoid the populace, to keep them from prematurely proclaiming him Messiah, is just to keep things quiet. Things were getting out of hand real quick, because every time Jesus told somebody to keep quiet, they would tell everybody. The second reason why he could have ignored him was to try the blind men's faith. Let's see if they really, really, really believe me. Now, this is something that is is happens a lot. Jesus will try people's faith. He says, I'm not going to be a genie in the bottle. You've got to come to me. You've got to prove to me that you really believe. And these blind men, they proved it all right. They kept right on coming. 
Now, Jesus asked them, do you believe that I can do this? Now, there's some options as to why he asked. Was he ignorant of their faith and is just asking innocently? Uh, do you believe that I can do this? An, an innocent question. Or is he rather tr further trying their faith to deepen it? And I believe that's the answer, as John Gill and Adam Clark believe also. He's trying their faith. And, of course, they answered, yes, Lord, they truly believed. And it wasn't just a simple yes. They had walked after him shouting, begging him to heal them. They didn't just say, yeah, yeah, Lord, I think you can do it. They followed Jesus all the way home shouting, verse 29 through 31 in Matthew chapter 9. Then he touched their eyes, saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. Why did he touch their eyes? Well, Jesus healed in all kinds of different ways. Touching was one way that he did, laying on of hands. He touched their eyes. Doing that would make them feel connected to Jesus. After all, they were blind. They couldn't see what was going on, and they would feel the hand going on their eyes, and they would, and they would think, okay, here's God, and Jesus is praying for me, or, or not praying for him, but getting ready to heal me. Now, notice that Jesus said, let it be done for you according to your faith. This is one more of the many, many examples where Jesus ties the amount of faith in the recipient of the healing with his operation of the healing. Jesus responds in power in response to the faith of his supplicants. Here's another example in the previous chapter, Matthew 8, verse 13, that Jesus told the centurion, go as you have believed, in other words, according to your faith, same thing, let it be done. And there's other examples of this too. For example, a woman who was healed of the issue of blood. Jesus said to her, let it be done to you according to your faith. So we go the, to the next question, which is, why did Jesus warn them sternly? Be sure that no one finds out. Why was Jesus being stern with these two blind men? Well, as Jesus had experience here with telling people, don't tell anybody, and they never paid him any attention. Remember the leper? Jesus said, don't tell anybody but the priest down in Jerusalem. And the reason he did that was because he wanted to prove that he was the Messiah, that the, the, there was a, a detailed provision in the law where you had first to prove that the person had leprosy, see? then you had to prove that the leprosy was actually gone. And I think also why you had the leprosy was very detailed. And Jesus wanted the leper to go down there to, so that he could show beyond a shadow of a doubt he had been healed. And who healed him was Jesus. That would prove that he was the Messiah to these unbelieving Pharisees. This was at the early part of his ministry where he was, he was more interested in establishing his Messiahship than he was in training his disciples. Because after he got rejected by, as a Messiah... He focused on training the disciples rather than to prove that he was the Messiah. He'd done so many miracles by the end of his ministry that I think everybody knew knew what was going on. So why did he rebuke him sternly? Well, he had, as I said, he had bad experience of people not listening to him, so he tried to be, get real serious with these people. When a John Gill goes a little far, in my opinion, when he says this, quote, it was given, this, this warning by Jesus, was given with great austerity of countenance and severity of expression in a very rough and threatening manner. Which Christ, might, which Christ might be the rather induced to because he had given such like orders already and they had not been observed. I don't think Jesus looked real mean, screwed up his face, got rough, got threatening in his language. I just think he said very seriously, please don't tell anybody about what I just did for you. Now, why did he, there's a question of why he warned them like this, to keep people from thinking that he was the Messiah, which I think is the answer. John Gill, the creative John Gill, comes up with another possibility. Maybe Jesus wanted to shun the appearance of vainglory. He didn't want to make it look like he was trying to be a big shot. He was trying to be humble, in other words. I don't think so. I think he was just trying to keep people from prematurely proclaiming him Messiah. Well, once again, what happened? They went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area after he just told them sternly, don't tell anybody about 
me healing your eyes. He went out and told everybody. Well, what are some? Let's look at the psychology of these men and speculate. Perhaps they were just contemptuous of Jesus and ignoring his request. I find that hard to believe they were contemptuous of Jesus. I mean, after all, he just healed them of blindness. The other option is that they were overwhelmed with gratitude. They had an honest zeal to spread Jesus's honor and glory, and they just couldn't contain themselves, and they forgot what Jesus had told them. I think that's probably the real reason. Matthew chapter 9, verse 32 through 33. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. All right, now we're switching to another miracle leaving the two blind following blind men and now we're going to the deaf and dumb mute man who is healed just as they were going out verse 32 and 33 just as they were going out a demon possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him when the demon had been driven out the man spoke and the crowds were amazed saying nothing like this has ever been done in israel now he was unable to speak this is not just a natural uh dumbness muteness it's caused by the demon the demon kept him from being able to speak so Jesus had just healed blind men right before, and now he healed a dumb and deaf man possessed by a demon. This is really going to show that he's the Messiah. By the way, the Greek word there, unable to speak, mute, it, it means deaf as well as dumb, because if you're unable to speak, you're dumb, it usually means you're deaf too. You can't hear. You can't hear, therefore you can't speak. They're tied together. So anyway, he was a deaf and dumb man healed from a miracle. Now, there were three messianic miracles. This is according to the great Jewish scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum. One, if you healed a leper, only some people could do miracles, but only the Messiah could do special types of miracles, so-called messianic miracles. There were three of these. These came from Isaiah 35. One of them was healing a leper, and Jesus had already done that in his first tour of Capernaum, if you recall. Healing someone born blind, which he's going to do in just a little while, and healing a man possess a deaf and dumb man possessed of a demon that's another messianic miracle so this is a big deal here this is not just an ordinary miracle from isaiah 35 5 through 6 we get these messianic miracles verse 5 then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped the ears of the deaf unstopped is the relevant thing here verse 6 then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy there's the mute so the deaf mute are healed during the messianic periods the rabbis took that to say this is a messianic miracle for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert and there's your poetry your metaphor referring to messianic times streams in the desert now just as they were going out as soon as they left the house the demon possessed man was brought to him now what does that show that shows they were sitting outside that house just waiting for jesus to show his face so they could get healed they were just waiting this shows how busy jesus was which is a good example for Christians to follow, I would say. Now, they brought the dumb man on his own. The blind men followed and came shouting, the friends brought the dumb man. So his friends must have had faith for sure. But now there's a question as whether the dumb man had faith. Some people say he didn't have faith because he didn't come on his own. I don't agree with that. I say, yes, he had faith. I can't imagine Jesus healing anyone who didn't believe in him. He came, he agreed to come, so I think that would be reading too much into it to say that he was brought there and therefore he didn't have faith. Now the people said in verse 33, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, which of course it hadn't been. Now, what, like what, like this had been seen? Well, it could be just that healing of the deaf and dumb man, but also it could have been the previous miracles, Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old daughter being raised from the dead, uh, and the woman with the 12-year bloody issue could have referred to that. But at any rate, what they were comparing to was everything before in the history of Israel. And think about that. That's a pretty impressive benchmark because Moses, Elijah, and Elisha did some very remarkable miracles. Floating of axe heads. Remember all the miracles that Moses did to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
And the people said, now, nothing Moses did compared to this. This is just really awesome. So these people, and they were poor and simple people, they were more ready to believe in Jesus than the rich and learned Pharisees and Sadducees. Isn't that sort of typical? It's the same way, like in China, where are all those jillions of people getting saved? It's mostly in the countryside. You go into the universities, that's where I was most of the time, and they they believe faster than they do here. But they still, they got that, they would say, well, I have trouble. We were taught that God doesn't exist in our atheist schools, and Karl Marx said God didn't exist. And, you know, there you go again, getting their brains brainwashed with atheist stupidity, and they have trouble believing. And by the way, when it says the man was demon-possessed, that translation is, uh, that's the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. The Greek word is actually a little more general than that, is demonized. And whether possession is, is a, possession sounds like the demon has total control of you, and that's really not true, because a demon can't, he can suggest and, and seduce and induce your free will to do something bad, but he can't make you do it. You still have your free will. They can cause, I'm not trying to downplay the power of demons, they're nasty and they're dirty and they need to be driven out, but they don't possess somebody, unless they're totally, so totally possessed that they're zombies, you know what I mean? and I've heard of cases like that, those are people who are really, like that man in the, in the, the Gadarene demoniac in the tombs, he sounded like he was far gone, he was demon-possessed, he was screaming out and hollering and acting like insane, uh, an insane person. I guess you could say that person is, is so demonized he's demon-possessed. But not everybody is that far gone. So the, remember, the word is demonized, not demon-possessed. Matthew 9, verse 34, But the Pharisees said, He drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, look at the bind the Pharisees were in. They're looking at a man who just did a messianic miracle. So there was two things they could conclude from that. He was the Messiah, or two... He was driving out demons by the ruler of the demons because they had to admit that driving out demons was good. They had heard about the Galilean demoniac and here this deaf and dumb man had the demon driven out. Well, the Pharisees were not opposed to driving out demons. There were Jewish exorcists everywhere. They had this formula they would go through and they would say the formula to try to drive out demons. And in fact, the Pharisees' uh, formula involved this. First of all, you uh, get the demon to identify himself. Why do you have to get the demon to identify his name? Because according to the Pharisees, you can't drive a demon out unless you know his name. And so then you call out his name, like Legion, out Legion, out you go. The problem with the deaf and dumb man is you can't make him speak because he can't speak, so you don't know the name of the demon, so you can't drive him out. And that's why exercising a deaf and dumb demon was considered an extraordinarily difficult miracle that only the Messiah could do. Well, the Pharisees saw Jesus do this. Instead of believing him, like if they'd have had a decent heart, instead of being SOBs, they would have just believed in Jesus as the Messiah. But no, they had to come up with some reason to keep the populace from following Jesus. So they came up with this notion that he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Well, think about how stupid that is. Why would the devil, who wants to his demons to possess people, why would he take one of his demons and pull him out of somebody? That makes no sense at all. So now we've got the Pharisees reduced to blithering idiocy trying to fight Jesus. They were totally driven by their hatred. Their hatred overcame their rationality. So, and they knew that nothing big like that had ever been seen in Israel. They knew they were up against something here, something big. But instead of facing the obvious, they came up with these stupid, stupid reasons or stupid arguments to try to to deny Jesus's Messiahship. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, a theory which would be ridiculous if it were not melancholy is an outburst of the darkness, darkest malignity. That was dark malignity, all right. 
blaming Jesus, and this is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, by the way. When you start blaming, when you start attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to demons, and you do it knowingly, or at least grossly incompetently, like the Pharisees did here, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and by golly, there's not going to be any forgiveness for that. Matthew 12:24. the Pharisees in another place, not just here, but in another place, did the same thing. When the Pharisees heard this, Matthew 12:24, they said, the man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They just held on to that explanation. And we also have this story in a parallel in Luke 11, 11 15. Now here, Jesus didn't answer the charge. Why? Well, perhaps he did answer, and it just wasn't recorded by Matthew. Or maybe he thought the charge was too ridiculous to deserve answering, I thought. But, but he did answer the charge on the other occasions. I just mentioned Matthew 12, where there was another case where the Pharisees accused him of driving out demons by Beelzebul. And this is what Jesus, let's read this passage, Matthew 12, 24 through 26. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, The man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And what he's saying is, why would Satan be so stupid as to destroy his own kingdom by driving out his own demons? It's a simple argument. So I don't know why I've always had trouble interpreting that passage there. It's not as clear as it ought to be, I guess, but Jesus' point is, or the English is not as clear as it ought to be, but Jesus' point is nobody, no king is going to cause a civil war in his own kingdom and, and destroy himself and work against his own interest. That was his first defense. His second defense against this ridiculous charge was, hey, you rabbis are casting out demons. Now, if I'm casting out demons and you're casting out demons, why don't you criticize them too? Matthew chapter 12, again, this is in a different instance of, G of Jesus being charged with driving out demons by the rule of the demons, but it's the same principle. Matthew chapter 12, verses 27 through 28. And if I drive out demons by El Beelzebul, Jesus said, who is it your sons, the Pharisees' sons, who is it your sons drive them out by? Drive them out by? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And, of course, that's what he's saying. He says, look, I'm driving out demons by the Spirit of God, not Beelzebul, and I'm proving to you that the kingdom of God is here because I'm driving out demons. And, by the way, if it's wrong for me to do that, why do your rabbis do it? Why do you Pharisees do the same thing? If it's wrong for me, it's wrong for them. What's sauce for the, sauce for the goose? It's sauce for the gander. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Then Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The towns, were again, were in Galilee, where Jesus was operating now. All the towns and villages, that all does not necessarily mean every last individual one, all without exception. It can mean very many. There's three definitions of all, all without exception, all without distinction, number two, and number three, many. Here it just means many. He went to a great many towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing. Those are the three things he's doing, teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching just means to, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the Beatitudes, how to love your enemy, how to love your neighbor, and so forth. Preaching is inviting people to come into the kingdom, what we would call evangelism, 
And healing, of course, is obvious. Teaching, preaching, and healing. And I think that's a good pattern for Christians today, to teach, to preach. And when I say preach, I don't mean give sermons. That word preaching is ambiguous in English. To teach means to teach. To proclaim is the word I like to use. Proclaim, evangelize. And the third thing is healing. And we ought to do all three. And it's amazing. People like John MacArthur, they just point their fingers at people who heal and say, Oh, you're a fake. You're a scam. You're a cheat. Damning everybody. That's like saying... Everybody's a socialist because Bernie, all Democrats are socialists because Arcasia Ortez or whatever, that left-wing crazy woman up in New York, the socialist. That's like saying every Democrat's a nincompoop because of her. You can't do that because they are some sane Democrat. You might have to look hard and fast. You might have to look real hard, but you can find some sane people. Likewise, you can find a lot of sincere people who are healing and doing a lot of good in the kingdom of God. They don't, they don't get a lot of credit. They usually don't have a multi-billion dollar TV ministry raising money and building 16,000 square foot mansions, which these prosperity, I'm trying to think of a nice pejorative word that is not profane, these prosperity people are doing. But you can find some good people doing healing, and it's a shame that their good work is being obfuscated by the, the quacks that are out there. But on the other hand, there are cessationists out there who are doing the same thing by pointing to the crackpots and, and damning with too broad, painting with too broad a brush and damning everybody because of the excesses of a few. At any rate, Jesus did heal as he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. We should too. He healed every disease and every sickness. Now the question is, what does every mean? Just like the word all, it can mean every without exception, each and every one, or it can mean every without distinction, some from different categories. If you look up the lexicon, you have those two options. I don't know what it means. If it was every disease, and, and, and also every every disease, what? If every disease that was in the area, probably not. Every disease of the people that were brought to him is probably who it is. And I can't believe he let somebody go without getting without healing them. It could mean he healed every nasty kind of disease, Alzheimer's, leprosy, cancer, or whatever. They didn't have those names back then. But, you know, every nasty kind of disease, he healed them all. Whichever way you take it, he was healing big time. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them before they were weary. Why were they weary? Well, some people say they were weary because of the they were traveling from place to place following Jesus around. Yeah, maybe so. It could be they were burdened down by the traditions and the legalisms of the Pharisees. Adam Clark says that. Gill says they were tired from traveling around from place to faith, place. It could be both. But they looked like sheep without a shepherd. Now, notice the compassion. He felt compassion for them. You know, a lot of times people look at Jesus' ministry and we get teaching out of it. And we say, look how he spread in the kingdom. And we look at all the doctrinal stuff. And sometimes it's easy to forget that these people were really, really hurting. That's why it just bugs me when people say, oh, they just sought Jesus for the signs and not for, for the gospel. Well, you know, maybe the Pharisees did that. But the average person there, they were just ordinary sick Joe six-packs. Ordinary people who were beaten down, they had no health insurance, they had no old age pensions, they were living hand to mouth, they had no medical medicine to speak of at that time. I mean, they had medicine, but, you know, they died a lot quicker than we do today. And you, we're going to point our finger at them and say, look at they're chasing the signs and they're not chasing and they're not loving Jesus. Jesus felt compassion for these people. I wish we would, too. Jesus, in response to his own compassion, he says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. In other words, he wanted those sheep to have a shepherd. He wanted them to be gathered into the kingdom. 
pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, again, Jesus, we, we use this verse all the time, talking about Christian workers today. But back then, remember, all he had was those 12 at the very beginning, and he wants to build up his his harvest workforce, if you will. Again, he ended, he ended up getting more disciples. Remember, he sent out 70 at one time. Uh, and he says, uh, but that's what he wants. He wants to harvest these people in the kingdom, and we should too. That's the end of this audio. We'll take up Matthew 10 in the next one. I hope you enjoyed this one. We'll see you next time.